0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 160, and we're breathing the spicy smells of the semi desert, taking in the exotic and wondrous scenery around Namaqualand, as well as the stunning area of Southwestern Free State of the 1840s. Last episode, we heard about the period 1840 to 1843 in the southern Caledon River Valley and how the fur trekkers like Jan Moche were flowing into land that Moshweshwe of the Basutu believed was his. That was setting up a classic situation where land was the core of the tension. A lot of what we're looking at today is centered on a town largely forgotten these days, Philippolis. If you drive along the N1 between Bloemfontein and Colesberg, turn off at Tromsbach and head southwest along the R717 for around 45 kilometers. It's not far from the Orange River, and that's where you'll find Philippolis. Its history is certainly checkered. It's also the home, by the way, of writer and intellectual Lawrence van der Post and former Springbok rugby player Adrian Strauss. On the 22nd of October 1842, the country beyond the Orange River to the northeast of the Cape Colony was proclaimed British territory, and the sphere of operations of the Cape British military garrison was considerably enlarged. The emigrant Boers based in this region reacted with anger. It was Adam Koch II, the greco leader, who had requested protection from the British because of the increased numbers of trekkers in his vicinity. Between 1826, when Koch arrived, and 1840, he had managed to get along with the Boers, but the great trek had changed everything. The London Missionary Society had founded Philippolis in 1823 as a mission station serving the local Griqua people, named after the man you heard about last episode, Dr. John Philip. He was the superintendent of the LMS from 1819 to 1849. Adam the II settled in Philippolis with his people in 1826 and became supposedly the protector of the mission station, on condition that he also protected the San against the aggression of the Boers. Cook was supposed to promote peace in the region, at least that was the brief from the London Missionary Society. Instead, carnage ensued as the Griqua used Philippolis as a base for a number of deadly commanders against the San people, virtually wiping them out in the area. Ironically, the Griqua worked with the Boers to conduct their raids. This violated the agreement made between the London Missionary Society and Adam Cook II, and eventually the San were actually driven out of the area. When the Fuertrekkers began showing up nearby at Colesberg, which was one of the main jumping-off points of the Great Trek, tension grew between the Trekkers and the Grekwa. The main problem was the decision to grant control of the whole area to the Grekwa. The Boers resented being subjected to what they thought of as black or heathen control, even though the Grekwa were largely Christian. Concerned by reports of the situation turning violent, the British decided to send troops to Philippolis, and in December 1842, Acting Cape Governor Lt. Col. John Hare of the 27th Regiment, based in Grahamstown, marched to Colesburg with two 6-pounder guns and the 22 Royal Artillery members, along with 198 troops of the 27th. 361 soldiers from the Reserve Battalion 91st Regiment marched alongside with another 262 members of the Coloured Mounted Rifles, riding as point and reconnaissance. When they arrived in Carlsberg, sections were sent to check on the situation and all reported the area was calm, including Philopolis. However, they found that the Griqua were being pressurized by Jan Mok, and Adam Cock said he was threatened from time to time by the man who had eventually become more famous for leading a group of Boers to Natal to fight the British in eighteen forty three. He met with leaders of local Trek parties and Adam Cook and explained why they had reinstated British protection. Hendrik Hendricks, who was Cox's secretary, made a statement that further alienated the Boers. It was the English who made the hottentot free, said Hendricks, and never, never will there be security for the Griquas and the black natives of Africa until England continues to hold her hand over the whole country. Which is probably the most self-serving comment of 1842. It was also likely to concern Hay, who was more worried about expensive military expansion than actually protecting the Khoikhoi. Speaking of Mok, when he rode back into the Philippopolis area after leaving Durban, he tried to negotiate his own treaty then with Adam Koch. Remember, Mok was one of the more fiery Republican Boer leaders who viscerally hated the English. Koch rejected Mok's proposal without British agreement. Mok was outraged. It appeared there was no end to the long arm of this English law, and he had spent most of his adult life trying to attain Boer independence. The encroaching power of the Cape Colony was like an octopus, slipping outwards from the orange like the red tentacles of oppression. Governor Sir George Napier's decision to sign deals with both Adam Kok and Basutu King Mushuishwe were based on a precedent going back to 1834. That's when previous governor, Durban made a treaty with West Grikwa chief Andris Watubur and paid him a small annual salary in return for the responsibility of keeping order in his territory along the northern border of the Cape. Both Cork and Moshweshwe now undertook to maintain order in their territories north of the Orange and to assist colonial authorities in apprehending criminals and fugitives. The problem was some of the Boers were now being called criminals and fugitives by the Cape officials. Madame Cork was paid £100 in cash and sometimes in arms and ammunition. Moshweshwe received £75 in cash and also sometimes in arms and ammunition. The Voortrekkers had opposed the sale of arms to both of these groups, further inflaming passions. The problem with these treaties was Cock was not told about the limits to his territory. There was no description about where it started and ended, although Meshweshres also had a problem. The Basuta King's Treaty outlined a land between the Orange and Caledon rivers, plus a belt of about 55 kilometers, or as the original wording went, about 25 to 30 miles north of the Caledon. When treaty writers start using phrases like about 25 miles, then you know there's going to be an argument about where boundaries exist. Boundaries are quite specific, as we all know. Meshweshwari's land treaty provoked opposition from the Wesleyan missionaries living with Sikonyela, who was Meshweshwari's implacable enemy, because it included land Sikonyela said was his. Then the Boers took issue with Adam Koch's treaty, saying he had no power over them. So... Time to take a broader look at the year 1844 as we think about these things. 1844, like 2024, was a leap year. And coming up was a momentous moment. In May 24th, 1844, the first electrical telegram was sent by Samuel Morse from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. to the B&O Railroad Outer Depot in Baltimore saying, What hath God wrought? Considering that the telegram and later the radio led to television and then social media, perhaps we should all wonder what hath God wrought. In June of 1844, the Young Men's Christian Association was formed, the YMCA, setting off a chain of events culminating in that song of the same name by the village people. History is not all skops, and donna. In Paris, in August of 1844, Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx met for the first time. The rest, they say, is history. Also, in August 1844, the first ever international cricket match was played in New York City, the US versus the Canadian provinces. Many other interesting things happened that year. For example, Swedish chemistry professor Gustav Erik Pasch was granted a patent for his invention of the safety match. Possibly one of the most important deaths that year was Carlotta Lutumi, also known as La Negra Carlotta, who died in November. She was an African-born enslaved Cuban woman of Yoruba origin from Nigeria. Carlotta was one of the leaders of the slave rebellion at the Triunvirato plantation of Cuba during the year of the Lash in 1843-44. Together with others, Carlotta led the slave uprising of the sugar mill called Triunvirato in the province of Matanzas by serving as the leader and eventually being conceptualized in the 20th century as a martyr of the Triunvirato rebellion Carlotta became symbolized in Cuban memory as a strong woman who would eventually come to represent ideas of Cubanness and revolution all the way to the 21st century. Then Russian composer Nikolai rimsky korsakov was born. But back in the dusty flatlands around Filipolis, Adam Koch and the Boers were blissfully unaware of the significance of all these births and deaths across the Atlantic Ocean. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast in the Cape, the newly created road boards were hard at work, building new routes out of Cape Town, connecting the rest of the colony to the most important port in the Southern Hemisphere. These road boards consisted of four members elected every three years by the owners of the property in each division. And divisions were something like a provincial council, but not exactly. They were thought of at the time as equivalent to the word county in Canada and the USA. A district and a division embraced the same area, and a resident magistrate of these districts was often the civil commissioner, although sometimes there were several magisterial districts within a division. The road boards are important to our story. They had the power to levy rates for the construction and maintenance of branch roads. Another group was created called the Central Road Board, which consisted of three official and three unofficial members, all appointed by the governor. They also had the power to levy rates on an annual basis, but these rates could not be more than one two hundred fortieth of the appraised value of all the landed property in the Cape. They also set tolls and ferry fees, which were then spent on maintaining the roads and the ferries. The central board controlled convicts, which they used as labor to build the roads. Every landholder in the Cape was under obligation to pay divisional rates, something like council fees, varying on the size of their property and each had a vote in the election of these divisional councillors. In addition to these rates, all residents in towns and villages were paying municipal rates by now. So as you can see, paying rates to live in a South African town is a very old idea. However, there was a problem with the system then as there is now. Complaints began fairly swiftly from the thinly populated areas of the colony about the cost of maintaining these routes. The main complaint was that most of the funds seemed to be going to cover the salaries of the officials and their travelling expenses, rather than going towards the upkeep of the road itself. How modern. By this point, there were steamships operating between Cape Town and Port Elizabeth, which often called in at Mossel Bay as well. By the way, other ships began flocking in huge numbers to a bunch of islands off Namaquiland. The Great Guano Rush had started at the end of 1843, and really got going in 1844. It was discovered that vast deposits of guano on uninhabited islands off the coast of Great Namaqualand were worth at least $35 a ton if you could get the smelly stuff to England, the West Indies and America. Immediately whole fleets of ships were employed in removing the valuable manure and stripped these rocks of their guano in less than two years. The Cape Town merchants bought the barren rocks Hoping that the annual flocks of gulls and other birds, as well as seals, would replenish the Bay islands with new layers of guano. Further north, the Germans and the Portuguese, as well as the Americans, had begun harvesting guano near Luderitz. Chief among these islands to the south were Holland's Bird Island, Mercury, Ichabo, and a few islets of Angra Pequena Bay, while the island of possession lay alongside the Maclean. Cape officials hurriedly instituted tax on the guano making about a quarter of a million US dollars in tax from the stinky dung. While South Africa's cold Benguela waters made for an excellent guano-harvesting spot, it was actually nothing compared to the islands off Peru and Chile. By the mid-1840s, American and British merchants were seeking alternatives to what they saw as the Peruvian and Chilean monopolies, and thus an astounding link shall be revealed, all cloaked in the shrouded mists of the Chile Benguela. A book had been published in 1833 called Voyages and Adventures of Jack Halliard with Captain Morel. There is a single sentence in this book devoted to the bird deposits on an island called Ichabo. And Morel said the guano deposits were 25 feet thick. An enterprising English merchant called John Ray heard about the reference a decade later and became interested in the commercial possibilities of guano. With great secrecy, a fleet of three vessels led by the brig Anne was sent to the southern African coast from England in 1843 to find this elusive island. At first, it was fruitless, and eventually only the Anne was left. The other two sailed home. Its commander, Captain Parr, was on the verge of calling it a day, and went off to Cape Town to pick up some victuals for his homebound voyage. While anchored in Table Bay, he met with a whaling captain, an American, who had actually visited Ichabo and gave Captain Parr the directions. What these fellows didn't know was that another group led by Captain Alain had already found the islands and half-filled his ship with guano before Gale had forced him back to sea. He sailed back to Bristol with the aim of returning to Namaquiland to complete his guano mission. When Captain Power arrived back home, he was approached by the local merchants to return with at least six ships, at least, that's what historians believe, and they sailed under sealed orders, all hush-hush. Nothing is as valuable as seagull dung after all. The first ship back was the smaller bark called Douglas, whose captain strode onto Ichabo Island, slapped in a flagpole and declared, This guano belongs to the Queen of England, or something to that effect. While the official announcement of laying claim would come much later in 1861 by the government itself, from now on, only the British flag was allowed to fly from these dung-covered rocks. Thus began the flood of African guano into Great Britain. Early arrivals at Ichabo ended up staking out claims like conquerors on a new continent. Each claim was called a pit, and the boundary lines extended back from the eastern shore, where the violence of the sea was less. Stagings needed to be built for the diggings, and each pit was furnished with a raft or a wharf, which extended out over the rocks. Men would carry the guano in wheelbarrows or on bags on their backs. The first American vessel to participate was the square topsail schooner, Emmeline from Mystic, back in the U.S., a whaler that had developed a leak and was being sealed in Cape Town in 1844. The American consul in Cape Town was Isaac Chase, who handed a sealed sailing order to the Emmeline captain. Upon opening these, after departing Table Bay, he read, The secrecy is no doubt for your own good that we may reap the benefits of a good chance now open and only known to the consul. We are also informed here that so great is the demand for guano that packets are taking it from England to the United States. Eventually, the Emmeline made it to Ichabo, sailed past a few other islands scattered along the Namaquilan coast. The captain's log is full of descriptions, about dozens of ships gathering the guano, some loading about 1,500 bags of the white gold at a time. The Emmeline left in late March and offloaded its valuable cargo, In the West Indies. Southern African nitrogen rich guano and sodium nitrate ended up in places like California, Virginia, Prussia, Great Britain and France. What's amazing really is how this all played into the changes going on in agriculture starting from this period just before the mid 19th century. Input intensive agriculture was developing rapidly particularly in America and Europe which had replaced the local recycling of nutrients and long, fallow periods of traditional agriculture. Harvesting guano, though, as you can well imagine, was backbreaking and very dangerous work. Just getting on and off the islands was a challenge, with the powerful Atlantic waves crashing over the workers, toiling away. Each worker was supposed to chip off about four tons of guano per day. The ammonia-laden dust triggered devastating lung diseases. A few years later, in 1862, novelist Victor Hugo would write in his novel Les Miserables that there is no guano comparable infertility with the detritus of a capital. A great city is the most mighty of dung makers. Certain success would attend the experiment of employing a city to manure the plain. If our gold is manure, our manure, on the other hand, is gold. He wasn't far wrong. German scientist Justus von Liebig had just published his Treaty on Fertilisers and Soils in 1840, which actually ushered in this guano rush. When soil was exhausted, said von Liebig, the remedy was not cow dung and clover, but a potent manufactured combination of chemical fertilisers. Farming in South Africa was also going through a revolution starting in the mid-1840s. A situation of extreme territorial desperation had developed, reaching new and alarming proportions. Merino sheep had been introduced in the frontier which didn't need all this newfangled guano. It so happened that the demand for wool in England starting from this period went into orbit and simultaneously the domestic wool clip as they call it. The number of sheep being shared there dropped. This created a heavy demand for imported wool most of which was going to be supplied by Australia and would create huge value for the farmers there. Cape imports, though, were competitive because it was much cheaper to pay for the ocean transport from Cape Town than Sydney or the new town of Melbourne. And what this also meant is that the Cape economy, which had been regarded as a rather sad and fitful affair, suddenly saw an uptick in fortunes. Before this time, the Cape's principal export had been wine, thriving particularly during the Napoleonic Wars, which cut off supply from Europe, but it had been in decline since. After wine, the Cape colony drew heavily on what nature supplied. Animal skins, aloes, ivory, dried fruit, ostrich feathers. But by the mid-1840s, wool accounted for 60% of the Cape's exports. Most of this came from the eastern frontier regions, and wool transformed the future of the port that served it, Port Elizabeth. It accounted for only 18% of the colony's exports in 1840, but by 1846 that had shot up to 47%. As the money flowed into the Eastern Cape, locals like John Mitford Balker and Robert Godlington and other Grahamstonians increased the volume of their criticism of Cape Town. Was this the tail whacking the dog? these noisy colonists ranted and raved about how the British colonial officials ignored their suffering at the hands of the Amakosa and used the economic windfall in their argument. For the Amakosa and the Khoikhoi living amongst these farmers, the dependence of the Cape Colony upon will reserves was an ominous development. Settlers had more power to demand more land, but by the mid-1840s all productive land had been sold to private owners. As wealthy investors began to arrive in South Africa from Britain, especially to invest in wool farms, eyes began to swing eastwards beyond the Fish and the Kaiskama rivers. Charles Lennox Stretch, the diplomatic agent hired by the Cape government, was noting all of this down in his diary. It's written in beautiful copperplate writing, by the way. Born in Bristol in May 1797 of an old respected Irish family, Stretch had joined the British army in was sent to Southern Africa in 1818 as a captain of the 38th Regiment. He'd fought against Amak and in Gramstein in 1819, then worked as an engineer and land surveyor in Graaf in 1823, followed that up with a stint working with Andrew Geddes Bain in building the Oderbach Road Pass and Van Reinevelds Pass in 1832. So now what Stretch noted was that the report of livestock theft was massively exaggerated by people like Bowker and Garlington. He was a supporter of what was known as the Stockenstrum system, where the settlers were no longer allowed to ride into Amatosa territory to reclaim stolen cattle. The army would do it for them. Sir George Napier supported this system, but it was under increased pressure as the greed for land generated by the wool industry accelerated. Stockenström's system had guarded against land invasions by the settlers, but the ceded territory between the Fish and Kaiskama rivers were coveted by the English and the Boer farmers. Stockens system had also regarded the Amakosa-speaking peoples as inalienably sovereign in their own country beyond the Cape colony's borders. However, the line between the Cape and Amakosa territory was equivocal. Stockholmstrom had given the Amakosa their right to occupy the ceded territory after the Sixth Frontier War but then said the colony retained their right to build forts in that territory. Napier never built a fort despite this clause but it did confuse the situation. Eight years had elapsed since the last war between Amakosa and Settler but the peace would not last much longer. There was a merino-sheep miracle going on in South Africa and when money and land is involved Anything can happen and usually does. We'll saddle up and ride to Mishreshwee's kingdom next and then it's time to head back to the Eastern Cape because there's trouble brewing in the ceded territory. Please rate the podcast on your favourite platforms. It helps elevate the visibility and you can head off to desmondlatham.blog where I'll load an update about this episode. You can also email me from there. Until next, goodbye. <laughs>